Welcome to Manufacturing Tomorrow, focusing on advanced manufacturing innovations, solutions, and partnerships that exist in our region now and in the future. Hello there, you're listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host for this segment. Special thanks to Ohio State Center for Operational Excellence for helping us to arrange this interview. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Chris Kaplis, Executive Director of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Center for Transportation and Logistics. He created and leads the MITx MicroMasters program in supply chain management, the first online credential offered at MIT, with 100,000 students representing 180 companies participating. He's also the founder of MIT Freight Lab, a research initiative that focuses on improving the way freight transportation is designed, procured, and managed. In addition to his work at MIT, Chris is chief scientist for Chainalytics, the leading analytical supply chain consulting firm. And prior to joining MIT, he held several senior management positions in supply chain consulting, product development, and professional services at several companies, including Logistics.com and Sabre. Chris received a PhD in transportation and logistics systems from MIT. In addition, he earned a master's degree in civil engineering from the University of Texas at Austin and a bachelor's in civil engineering from Virginia Military Institute. Chris was selected as the first Silver Family Research Fellow in 2016 in recognition of his contribution to supply chain education and research. And a month ago, he received the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals Distinguished Service Award, one of the industry's most prestigious honors. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And congratulations on the award. Oh, thank you. It was a, it was a surprise. I feel way too young to be distinguished. But <laughs> there you have it. You're responsible for the planning and management of the research education and corporate outreach programs for the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. What are some of the real world problems that the faculty and corporate partners have addressed? Yeah, so the interesting thing about CTL, uh, we're about 40 years old and we are very much at the nexus between practitioners and theory. And we really try to work both, uh, both ends of the, of the spectrum. And so all of our projects are sponsored by some company. There's always some company involvement. And so some of the most recent projects have dealt with things such as how do I optimize my promotions of consumer packaged good or CPG products? Mm-hmm. How do I make that uh, more profitable both for the manufacturer and the retailer? Uh, we worked with Walmart uh, to help them allocate their private fleet versus their four higher transportation over their network to try to maximize service and lower costs. Um, we've developed uh, optimization models to help different fast or quick service restaurants uh, optimize their back of house or back room space to uh, improve service and also lower cost. We've done a lot of work in last mile delivery um, in urban settings, a lot of work in sustainability, uh, and uh, also a lot of work with um, brokers and uh, in the freight transportation world looking at the linking of price and performance and kind of trying to answer the question, if I pay more to someone, will they give me better performance? And what's interesting is usually it's negatively correlated, which meaning means if I pay more, I usually don't get better service. But it's a way of diving into that data and trying to understand what's going on. But at the heart of it, all of our research projects are tied to a question that a company wants answered. Excellent. Um, so in bestowing the Distinguished Service Award, the, the Council of Supply Chain Management indicated you are leading the charge in democratizing supply chain knowledge 
with the online MITx MicroMasters credential program. Uh, how difficult a process was it to make sure those online courses were available for anyone in the world to access? It's a, it's a great question, and um, this is something that started out initially as a little side project we were doing. Uh, edX is an organization founded by MIT and Harvard and many other universities, and they created essentially a platform that uh, can be used to host a course. So MIT has something called MITx, which is like a production house. And so MIT courses go into the MITx logo and run on the edX platform. And when we were asked to do this first course in the summer of 2014, I agreed to do it because I thought it'd be fun. I had no idea that it would get as big as it would, as it would go. We were not the first online course by any means, but we were the first one uh, that was incorporated into what's known as a MicroMasters, and I'll get to that in a second. But when we undertook this, we developed three guidelines, three guiding principles that we wanted to follow. And the first is to educate the world for free, that everything we offer will be available for free for anyone, anywhere, with internet access. And we stick to that. So all the lectures, all the problems are out there for free. We credentialize at cost. And so if you want a credential to assess how well you did, we need to be a little more rigorous. So we need to be a little more um, tight in how we uh, analyze things to prevent uh, honor violations and make sure it's really you doing the test. So that costs, I think, uh, $150 per each of the courses. Mm -hmm. And then the third step beyond educating the world for free um, credentializing at cost is to customize at margin and that's for companies because one of the unintended uh, benefits that we saw is that as we create these lessons and one of the challenges is turning a 90-minute lecture into a series of five-minute little snippets which is uh, more of a challenge than I thought it would be but by doing that you've essentially modularized your your content and as anyone in manufacturing or supply chain knows if I modularize something I can adapt it and assemble it in different ways so now, having modularized our content, we are finding that companies are finding it interesting to pick and choose which modules they want to fit their customized course. So what we're doing now is blending this with in-person classes as well as online. Because what we found over the last several years is that there are certain things that are best taught face-to-face, -face, and there are actually things that are better taught online. And so, for example, online, Topics would be things that are very methodological, mathematical, um, analytical, where the person can control the speed of which they learn, go backwards, and really control their own pace. Where online falls very short is teaching leadership, uh, teamwork, um, kind of st strategy discussions. The Socratic method, in my experience, fails online. That's why you need something uh, in person. So what the MicroMasters does, it's a five-course sequence of classes covering supply chain analytics, fundamental trade-offs, design, dynamics, and tools or technologies, followed by a capstone. So it's kind of more of the quantitative side of supply chain. If you finish these five courses and graduate um, the passing grade, you get the MITx MicroMasters credential in supply chain management. If you then have that and apply to MIT for its one-year supply chain management program and get in, we'll grant you a semester's worth of credit. And that's, that's a big deal because MIT has never done that before for online um, courses, giving actual credit. That's incredible. Now, yeah, it was, it's a great thing. This was announced in uh, fall of 2015. Just about two or three weeks ago in September of uh, 2016, we announced 14 other MicroMasters that have been out in other areas, um, economics, humanities, at other schools too, not just MIT. So the whole idea of this new credential hopefully will take off it's a standalone credential. We hope it means something. 
I view it as something in between a professional certification and a master's degree, but it can also lead possibly to a faster master's degree as well. How do you find those who, I mean, they're just entering now, right, this year, mm -hmm. so how are you finding the, uh, the preparation of those who have, have taken that opportunity? So we are um, we're in the bad position of developing some of the course while we're actually delivering it. Okay. Because the President Reef's announcement came out when we were only had two and a half of the courses already produced. And of course, demand went through the roof as soon as that was announced. Big carrot at the end of the stick for taking these courses. So we are actually just launching the fourth of five courses next week. And then the fifth of the final course launches in January. So the first wave or cohort of MicroMaster students coming, applying to come to MIT in the blended program, they won't apply until July of 2017 and they'll show up in January 2018. Got it. So uh, this morning you were, you were speaking at the Center for Operational Excellence Forum on trends that will challenge traditional supply chains. Would you briefly explain how miniaturization, virtualization, decentralization, and digitization will alter the competitive landscape for a company? And can you uh, say that four times fast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, um, yeah, so we, um, we, I was looking at different ways to describe how possible trends could impact supply chains. And uh, I focused in on a series of ones, and they're not all um, equally valid. But mm -hmm. we're just trying to see, as you look out, uh, one of the things I try to make clear is that no one does a good job of predicting the future. We tend to be very bad at it, and there's tons of examples out there in this. And the whole idea is to say, okay, how can I better prepare for the future instead since I can't predict it that well? And a good way to prepare is to think about different things that are happening. And so one of the ideas about miniaturization is actually where things get more uh, dense, so densification. Um, and so for that, you know, you look at the... Uh, taking water out of products, things like that, where they get smaller. Think of the iPhone or any smartphone compared to the similar types of equipment it replaced. So as you see things miniaturized or actually the value density increases, um, does that have an impact on supply chains? And while it does on some aspects, um, it doesn't have that big of, an a, of, a, of a change. The ones that really do, um, especially for manufacturing, is the decentralization and the digitization. And what I mean there, and this is very relevant for manufacturing, is if you wanted to automate either a plant or a distribution center uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was a huge investment and it was a high fixed cost and it made your solution very fragile for the most part because you would optimize it and automate it for the product mix that you currently had. Um, and if there was any change to that, it could wreak some havoc because they were very fragile. What's happening now is a, a launch of new technologies that tend to lower the fixed costs. So the economies of scale of automation are going down. So what that means, I, it makes sense to have smaller plants. If I have smaller plants, then why not locate them closer to uh, the consumer market? Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of um, decentralization is the lowering of economies of scale of some automation. Uh, an example I always give is the Baxter robot uh, that is designed to work with uh, people to emulate what they do as opposed to being uh, kept fenced off from the humans. The cobots. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that whole idea. And then the um, Kiva, which is now acquired by Amazon, uh, Amazon Robotics, where it actually automates and brings the shelves to the picker instead of the picker to the shelves, dramatically speeds up the picking process, but also allows for uh, faster automation at a lower scale. So the whole idea here, we're going to have to see more of this coupled with the digitization. And so this includes, you know, digitization of 
uh, media, which is pretty much a, an established story, although something interesting happened there as well. I always give the example of, the, uh, of recorded music, how LPs were beaten, or were, they, they peaked in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, eight-track tapes came in, then cassettes, then CDs, and then digital downloads. And so the whole idea is a story of um, you know, changing formats and then how it got eaten alive by digitization. But 2015 was the first year where streaming revenues overtook download revenue. So what this means, it's like, kind of like a canary in the coal mine that people are getting used to not owning things. And right. so now the, the whole idea of a shared or renting economy, that, that could have huge ramifications in a lot of other industries. So you think about cars, for example, um, zip cars or any kind of shared car service. Uh, I was talking to some people from the automotive industry and they estimated that every car that is used in a zip car kind of shared profile takes, I want to say 15 cars out of the population. Um, because what that means is those are cars that people aren't buying. Um, so it's interesting how this shared economy could have ripple effects out um, to other things beyond just, just uh, it, its immediate impact. The other thing is uh, 3D printing, which I tied together for digitization. Um, we're finding that, uh, yes, it's, it's widely used for some uh, prototyping, you see that there, and for medical things, for unique stuff. Um, but what's more interesting now, it's finding its niche and complementing traditional manufacturing techniques. It's not replacing, it's complementing them, and it's allowing people to, instead of just replicating a new way to make a common part, maybe a little better, it's, it's reinventing systems. So if you look at what GE's doing with a lot of their equipment is instead of just using 3D printing to uh, create the same parts in a different way, they're taking things that used to have to be created in multiple parts to make a system and making that as a single part. So it's really changing the way that it's being used and it's uh, finding its niche. Like any innovation, typically it gets used in the wrong way initially. It gets used as the old process used to be used and it takes a while to find its niche. RFID printing had the same thing. It took a long time. It, remember when we first came out, everyone's going to have RFID chips everywhere and we'd mm -hmm. be tracking everything. It found its niche. I think uh, 3D printing found its niche very quickly and now it's starting to change the way people think about the manufacturing process. But it's the rare item that is made in three, by a 3D printer that is not also finished or completed by a traditional manufacturing process. How do universities like MIT help companies navigate that changing landscape? Yeah, it's, it's, I think um, universities can offer two things. Uh, one is the window into the future, and the other is as, as an honest broker. Uh, the window into the future is something where uh, I don't do the hardcore science research into the material sciences and things like that, but I know where they live. And so by keeping my eyes open at the labs at MIT, what we do once a year for our um, supply chain exchange, which is our consortium of company, partner companies, is we have a conference where we expose them to the labs and we bring people in to talk about things that they probably haven't heard of. Um, about eight years ago we had uh, the guys from uh, for 3D printing from the Center for Bits and Atoms. We talked about uh, the artificial leaf for energy production. Uh, this year we're going to start talking about blockchain. You know, so things that people might have heard about and they that will impact their job five years from now, ten years from now. So we try to be that window to the future. But then the other is, is an honest broker. So we do a lot of events where we bring companies in and competitors as well as uh, you know, suppliers, customers, and we talk about contentious topics. And people, I don't know what it is about a university, you come in, people, they, maybe they drop their guard, but it's more open discussion. 
And we find that a lot of the value that companies have by coming and talking with us is that we can facilitate. It's not for us to spout what we know, but to facilitate and get the other people around the table to chirp in because they learn more from each other than they do from us. So that's why up at MIT in our center, we don't have a consortium just in food or just in beverages or just in steel or anything like that. It's a mix because we think someone from Intel can learn from someone from Coke. Uh, someone from P&G can learn from someone in a totally different industry. We think the new experiences help. And so that honest broker capability allows us to facilitate discussion and mixing that normally wouldn't happen outside of a university. We've seen that too. Yeah, sure. So the, the difficulty with uh, looking five to ten years down the road is uh, government doesn't operate that way. So how do you negotiate that? Um, we like to pretend that it doesn't exist, so we don't really... I, I've done some work with the government, and so I, I'm being facetious, but um, we, we don't... Our center is not as heavily reliant on government funding as many other centers are. Um, the last project we did was with the Department of Transportation, and we do some other things for, um, from the DOT, or one of the university transportation centers in the United States. And most of that work is dealing with either passenger or freight flow. And so we generally, the people we work with in the government are the longer term, non-elected, and there's more steady state continuity, I think, in that area uh, than you find in the publicly elected. So the policies, for example, this year, they finally, or in the last year or so, they finally got a national freight policy. Uh, now it doesn't have too many finances tied to it, but it, it's a step in the right direction. So I'm engaged with that. So I think anything that we can do to help with the continuity and understanding the importance of, of making a, a more competitive environment, infrastructure, we stay involved with that, but we stay away as far as possible from any lobbying or anything like that. So. Um, in fact, one study we did, gosh, five, six years ago, uh, when the capacity for transportation was tight, so it's been quite a while, I want to say 2004 to 2008, maybe somewhere around there, we did a study because we found that the government, um, people who owned the infrastructure, um, DOT, thought very differently from shippers who thought very differently from carriers. And if anyone's worked with shippers and carriers before, uh, they usually don't agree on anything. But the only way we could get them to agree on something is to bring someone from either a state or federal government in the room. And then they'd start agreeing with each other because they found someone else they really didn't agree with. But what was interesting, we did a, a series of workshops and everything, and the empathy for each other's position suddenly became clear because government infrastructure owners in Department of Transportation have a very hard job. Pallets don't vote, and so they don't get a lot of priority. And also, they. Um, there's a lot of push against not in my backyard, the NIMBY vote where people don't want a freight yard or an intermodal exchange or a highway ramp. And there's also a opposition of banana. Are you familiar with that? Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. People who just don't want anything there. And so they're facing these things and they're also facing the environment that the private sector faced 20 years ago where it was modally divided. Truck was treated separately from rail, separately from air, which is how the government does it. Companies used to do it, but don't anymore. And they're, they're uh, separated by geographies. A metropolitan area will have one jurisdiction, then the state, and then federal, and they all overlap. So they face these restrictions and have to make um, judgments and investments 20, 30, 40 years out. So the government's job is very hard compared to the private sector. But what the result of this study and, and this uh, initiative was to get them to better understand how they each worked with each other.
So there is a gap there, but we try to bridge that gap. Autonomous vehicles, though, that's going to blow that model sure. out of the water, right? Um, it, it could. There's a lot of debate there, and I, I'm no expert here. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard estimates from it's going to be within five years, and some human machine experts tell me it'll take 100 years before you have a fully robotic car or truck out there. Um, I think there's a couple things happening. Um, one is the technology is there for most part, and it's being implemented slowly. So we're, we're you know, cooking the frog, we're boiling the water slowly by automate, the safety automation in trucks and cars. What was once a high-end luxury item is now standard, and it's getting more and more um, uh, included into both passenger vehicles and trucks. And so we're slowly automating a lot of the driving practice. That last step is a big one. But um, you know, I think we're going to start seeing it, and we're going to start seeing it in controlled environments first, and then maybe along a corridor. It's going to start happening. Um, and so the big driving force for it is the safety aspect. Um, you know, the robots or the machines don't drink, they don't text while they drive, uh, they can react better. Um, society has to get over that. Um, but there's not, right now, there's actually no regulation against not having a driver. It's just the type of drivers where the restrictions are. Mm. So that's why Uber is able to do their pilot in Pittsburgh where they have you know, driverless uh, Uber cars when actually there is a person in the front seat and a person in the back seat, but they're just there to, to watch it. But, so it's happening technologically, societal. I think it will happen. And I would like to say our children's children will laugh at us and think it's really funny that we drove ourselves Other, because it'll be that far in the future. Chris, thank you for your time. We appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks.